Welcome to the International Civil Society Center's Future and Innovation Podcast. I'm Nihal Helmi, Knowledge and Communities Manager here at the Center. Our Global Perspectives 2021 hybrid experience was as exciting and inspiring as you'd expect. We gave our communities the opportunity once again to immerse themselves in themes and workshops, designing common strategies to address key trends, challenges, and opportunities of shifting power. We have created these episodes to bring you some of the conversations and panels we experienced during the conference. We hope you find them as insightful and valuable as we did. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Nihal. Thanks very much for having us. So my name is Clara. I work with Civicus. I've been with Civicus for seven years now, and currently I work as Senior Advisor on Civil Society Resourcing. Civicus is a global alliance dedicated to strengthen citizen action and civil society around the world. We're member-based. We have, I think, over 12,000 members right now from 175 plus countries, and our members really represent the whole range of civil society formations, geographies, struggles, and the other levels I think I mentioned already. My role and the work stream I'm involved in is really trying to leverage Civicus visibility and credibility and networks to push for more and better resources for civil society, but particularly for smaller, less formal groups, groups based in, in the global south. Thank you, Clara, for this wonderful introduction. Elisa and Dumi, I would love to hear from you also. What do you do in the 21st century citizen action work stream? Thank you so much, Nihal, and hello, everyone. So nice to be here. So yes, my name is Elisa Novoa. I am part of the Civicus team leading the youth engagement work stream. It's a community of over 3,500 young activists from all over the world, mainly from the global south. And our role here is mainly to facilitate all kinds of resources, knowledge, partners, and support mechanisms for young activists to be stronger, safer, more resilient in the change-making efforts that they are leading towards social justice. Greetings, everyone. Thank you. My name is Dumi, pronouns they, them, there. I am the founder of Success Capital Organization based in Botswana, that is youth, feminist, grassroots-led, serving, managed, and we are a member of Civicus World Alliance, and so I'm here with two hats. That's the first. The second is uh, serving as a critical friend of Civicus, essentially bringing in lived experiences in a part-time role, consulting within the work stream of the 21st Century Citizen Action, and that's really about ensuring that different voices, perspectives, and lessons learned, particularly around unintended outcomes and transformative elements for grassroots activists in influencing funder relationships and the ecosystem. Perhaps let's start off with getting an overview. What is the work stream that Civicus is leading now? Perhaps, Clara, you want to come in? Yeah, sure. Basically, it's a relatively new kind of work stream. We started it about three, four years ago because we really wanted to start exploring innovative approaches through which our global alliance, global civil society alliance like ours, could support participation of, of you know, the, the driving agents of this century's citizen action, such as non-formal civil society organizations like movements or individual activists. There are various reasons 
basically that led us to initiate this type of exploration and, and let's call it work stream. It was really a mix of things. On one hand, really to realign on our initial mission, because Civicus was created in 1993 based on the underlying principle that free and effective societies exist in direct proportion to their degree of citizen participation and influence. And yet, over the years, especially since its establishment, we have tended to focus almost exclusively on one part of civil society, namely civil society organizations, so the more established parts. And then over the years, and, and I have to say it's been 10 years already that our analysis, our discussions within our membership have really pointed to the need to actually complement another work that we were already doing with in supporting and mobilizing organized parts of civil society with providing also more effective support for other individual activists and other non-formal groupings. And in terms of our reading of the context, of the changing context, let's say, that really was prompting us to do that, it's really the recognition. And as I said, it's been already 10 years that we've been sort of analyzing trends and pointing to that. The recognition that individual activists and their movements have the power to drive change as much as organizations do. And indeed, the two parts often do not support each other as well as they should. It was the Bridging the Gaps report that we published in 2011 that started bringing this up within our alliance. And then, of course, another sort of trend, there is enough evidence of that, suggesting that trust in institutions across the board has been falling, and that covers also trust in established parts of civil society. So therefore, trust in NGOs with the rise of online activists, direct action and citizen uprisings and social movements, and all that general disintermediation that is happening um, in our societies. We've been really questioning now whether people need the same sort of NGOs and, and structures to pursue collective action to realize rights. Of course, also our also constant concern for the operating environment of civil society and civic space and the realization, and in many countries, that environment for established organizations, for NGOs, is becoming more, more difficult, especially around funding restrictions, which increases once more the importance of finding ways to support individual and informal citizen action, while, of course, trying to creatively navigate other ways to still provide support to organizations. And then, yeah, other things have been questioned over the last 10 years. For example, the idea that social good is best pursued through the civil society sector, whether we have seen no, a rise in social entrepreneurs who want to do good and do well, or those who argue that active citizenship should be encouraged amongst everyone and not really just to be preserved by those who are employed within the sector. And the last part, and I'm sure Elisa and Dumi will, will be able to really unpack this further, has been really no, the, what we've seen over, over these last years, this renewed desire to mobilize amongst ordinary people, but especially amongst the newer generation. And so those of us in organized civil society must really sustain this momentum, making connections with these new mobilized ways of organizing and offering pathways for sustained participation. All this has been discussed for, I think, 10 years now within the Alliance, and our members and our board have underlined the importance of Civicus now, you know, investing substantially in supporting activists as well as organizations. So this is sort of one of the big steers that we received for the current strategic framework that has been introduced in 2017 and still the, the current one. And so these have been mostly the, the reasons really why we at Civicus really wanted to experiment and introduce a new work stream looking more at this. We've also 
noted a change in the kind of DNA of our membership over the last 10 years, but especially over the last five years, we now have more individual activists than organizations, but many more. Also the, the age of our members is changing a lot. So now we have at least 25%, if not more of our members are under 30 years old. And so we also need to reimagine how can we stay relevant to our members, acknowledging that the membership is changing and, and therefore the, the direction of travel for our alliance might, might, must also adjust. But maybe Elisa, do me. You may have other things you want to add. Uh, maybe to add that, yes, so this strengthening 21st century citizen action workstream does focus on the next generation of change makers or activists. And by that, as Clara was saying, we're referring to not only a generation that is young, but yes, that is important. And I'm just going to tell you in a second why, but also a generation that represents a radical way of organizing people that are breaking down the traditional organization structures of registering as an NGO or having a lot of time spent in planning and dialing and brainstorming and more into action using technology, using arts, using disrupting forms of influencing advocacy, very centering volunteerism, in passion, in care, in community. And again, as Clara was saying as well, trust. And then on on why you? So yes, definitely we're in a context where 1.58 million billion of the world population is, is under 30. So by a fact, it is important to focus on, on this generation. Second of all, we've seen through not only research, but all the general uh, information that we're receiving from mainly 2019, but not only uh, throughout the years that young people are at the center of these social movements, no? working to ensure whether the safety of their communities, protecting the environment for themselves or future generations, they are always in the front lines and their new ways of working are teaching us as uh, traditional, let's say, non-government organizations that have over 30 years of experience to actually use our imagination and rethink our ways of working and rethink and be more relevant in our strategies, decisions, and partnerships. And examples of this is you can see them in the, let's say, the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong or the climate strikes that are still going on, the Me Too movement online and in person. It's it's just pieces of cases of inspiration, young people mobilizing and giving us a reason why we should focus on, on this and, and learn from them. Yeah, and I think you know what's important is you know a decision that I think in the last five years that was made by Civicus to change the membership, recognizing that there's so many NGOs, collectives, and individuals who obviously want to be engaged, but you know there were certain limiting factors, for instance, like paying membership fees, and so I think it was already quite different and that was quite a unique positioning in recognizing that there is a gap and that not everyone has core funding and not everyone has the ability to be able to assimilate with institutionalization and I guess maybe the global INGO order and so it was quite critical you know having that policy change effectively aiming towards more inclusion and essentially allowing for others like you know my own organization to be able to be a member. Thanks Dumi and perhaps just to say that these were all the reasons now that led us to this. Basically, thanks to a partnership with NORAID, we were able to develop some dedicated capacity to start designing, testing, and potentially scaling new initiatives that would aim at strengthening you know, these groups and movements that, that we've just mentioned. 
And we identified two main areas in which we felt that thoughtful innovation could have a significant impact. One is revolving around the support to individual activists and new generation change makers who may not work within or associate themselves with organized civil society. And then another stream connected but conceptually separated, which is really looking at more direct and democratic resourcing of smaller and spontaneous civil society formations, which again in our analysis and endless conversations with our members tend to be the part of, this, of, of the sector that is left out of any sort of thoughtful design process to enable them to mobilize the resources and support that they need or that they wish to mobilize. These basically have been the two main legs of this work stream. Thank you all for these comments and for providing us the context, the motivation and the areas that you're focusing on. You have talking about the framework, you have talking about what is it so important, but maybe let's talk a little bit about what's the practical approaches here that we have talked about theory, what is in practical and the approaches that you have tested and that you have worked with, with your groups and members to achieve the strengthening of the 21st Century Citizen Action Workstream. Happy to. We have been testing a few approaches. I can share one that is very close to me, and then maybe I can hand it over to Clara for the others. One of these approaches or pilot projects is it's called the Youth Action Lab, and it's a one-year co-creation space for grassroots youth activists based in the Global South, and it works to support their movements to become more resilient, more effective, more sustainable in their pursuit of a more sustainable and equitable world. The lab is quite innovative space, co-created with a group of nine activists with the intention to provide a safe, active, inclusive, collective, representative, and very connected space for grassroots. Intentionally, it was going to be online and in person physically, but we know that some things change around the way. So it's now 100% online, but still with the same intention of curating a thoughtfully diverse context with people from different backgrounds and ecosystems. So we can have sort of, yeah, an ecosystem to better resource them to flourish with their communities, whether it's about fighting for women's rights in Liberia or mental health in El Salvador or against gender-based violence in Bangladesh or indigenous rights in, in Philippines. It is a space where we all see, besides our diversity, lots of points of connection, common challenges, common initiatives, and of course, common levels of enthusiasm to, to make this world a better place and mainly improve the conditions of, of our communities that we care. And how it works is that the participants in the lab work to build political solidarity and networks with mentorship programs, strengthen their capacities in engaging with policy processes through training workshops, the access to resources in financial and in-kind in a very flexible way to support their movements. They decide how do they allocate those resources available, when and how. And it's really an initiative that is testing really new ways of working within civil society and mobilizing learnings from across the sector in which the decision is really in the participants, the, the trust is there and the focus is, is on the relationship and, and their creativity and, and what their communities say. So practically speaking is putting our values and intentions into practice and testing how that goes. So far we've joined only once fully in 2020 and we're in the middle of the second one. But yeah. 
we've actually tested a range of things, you know, landscape analysis, looking at mapping the ecosystem of support for these groups, assessing existing modalities, assessing related obstacles and inefficiencies. So uh, more conceptual work around understanding and, and mapping and documenting. We've also organized several dialogues, consultations, and most importantly, co-design of prototypes, for example, of mechanisms that could move more resources and more agency to grassroots groups and movements. And in particular, I'd like to mention these as, a, as one of the examples that, that could be perhaps more interesting to share here, as well as maybe our latest addition, which, which I also would love, to, would love to share about. But on these four prototypes, I feel it was for us at Civicus a game changer in the sense that what we tried to do with this prototype was really to try and, and understand in a different way what would be methods that would bring innovative approaches to fruition, innovative approaches in modalities to resource grassroots groups and movements. And so we combined a consultation with cross-section of grassroots activists and funders and donors. We combined that with design thinking and with, with the idea to come up with some practical, concrete solutions and then elicit some, some sort of reactions on the relevance and the viability of some of these solutions, looking really at how would this fit in the context and in the lived experience of the various activists that we've engaged with. And the conversations and the insights that were gained through that process, which led, in fact, to develop four high-level concepts for prototypes that you can find, they are published, they are in our website. There are four kind of conceptual concepts that help understand a little better which are kind of the types, the possible directions of, of travel that fell to be responding to the needs, the obstacles, the challenges, and the visions that we've heard in those exchanges. But for us, it was the approach, the process that was used that was really a game changer because it really showed us the power of co-creation and the fact that we really have to start by listening and following the needs the realities and the, and the visions of the groups that we claim to you know, be willing to serve and, and support. And that that's the way to go in terms of designing meaningful solutions or approaches that then you know, can eventually be piloted and scaled. And I have to say that we didn't expect it, but there has been so much attention and interest on these four prototypes after they've been published. And, and I feel that one of the reasons might be that it was one attempt, or one, one of our first attempts to really try and move away from a very principled conversation around the fact that we need to move more resources to these groups and we need to be more devolved and you know, direct. But we were really always repeating the kind of, of same slogans without really looking at the practicalities of it. I felt that for us, it really helped us to move one step forward but to others as well, I think it's, it, it has been a useful signal, I think, in terms of, of, of a possible way to go. And then another one that I'd like to mention, because it's really brand new, we've just launched a campaign that has been co-created with an incredible group of grassroots activists. The campaign is called Grassroots Solidarity Revolution, and it's a labor of love. It's been 12 or almost 12 months of, of work and co-creation with them in times of COVID, so we never met face-to-face, -face, not even once. So you can imagine the challenges, but it's been, it's been a fascinating journey. So basically in, in January, we selected a team of five amazing activists 
from over 2000 applicants, because there was again, a lot of interest from activists to join something like this. And the idea was to embark together on, on this journey to co-create a campaign that would prioritize grassroots views, voices and visions to then engage donors, allies, INGOs and other key actors in trying to shift more and better resources to grassroots activism. So this was for us you know, a way to also apply some of the things that we've learned with the prototypes in terms of the approach the importance of co-creation and moving it another step forward, I would say, by really, really trying. And this is, you know, an attempt. We've, I think we've never done something like this before at Civigus, but really to try and make sure that the asks, the messages, the language and the approach to this was really done with and led by grassroots activists. Well, this team spent months consulting directly with a range of grassroots groups from their own countries in various parts of their countries, you know, on the various realities, resourcing realities, challenges and, and visions. And what emerged across the board was really something that I think, you know, we should all really reflect deeply upon. And it's really that relationships based on trust and solidarity are what grassroots activists value in their organizing and of their allies. But the reality is that the international support system, so international NGOs, international funders, more established grant makers, seem to be distant, irrelevant, inaccessible, and sometimes even harmful. There's no shortage of stories that we've documented that are going to be shared alongside the campaign that will explain exactly this and, and how unfortunately broken these relationships are and how harmful at times these are. And so in, in sort of analyzing why this is the, the reality and what could be sort of a way to try and, and build back sort of possible avenues for solidarity and, and allyship, I think that the group really surfaced the need to really address the culture, colonial and extractive behaviors, and those unbalanced power dynamics that are really conditioning those relationships, are conditioning the mindsets of what is possible or not possible on how to stay in relationship with each other and how to work together. And that this cultural conditioning is really kind of straightjacketing both sides in terms of how we can sort of work or be in solidarity. And that there are very, very few opportunities to cultivate relationships outside very transactional and pre-established processes like an application process or a consultation, so a very extractive process, where there's no really space to build mutual understanding or build shared visions or shared solutions. And so this is really sort of the essence of the campaign and what the campaign is going to look at. For me, personally, it has been a very, very transformative process. Clara and Elisa, thank you so much for explaining this so well and for giving us these practical approaches that you are testing. It seems like a lot of disruption that you are doing in the sector and a lot of sharing power, or even power shift entirely, which we find at the core of what we want to do, of what we want to showcase in Global Perspectives this year. Dumi, you are here on two hats, as you have mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And I'm sure from the implementation process or the execution process, 
there are a lot of lessons learned when working with an international organization as a critical friend, but also working as a feminist organization in Botswana. Maybe you can tell us from your perspective, what do you see as lessons learned on this disruption and shifting power on these campaigns and work? Thank you. And I think maybe just to mention a little before I address that, just a few key points that I think are really quite you know, important to mention that are context specific as well. And this is really quite telling in terms of the journey that many other activists have had gone through. On 11 June 2019, uh, Botswana had decriminalized same-sex relations. And that essentially was obviously a celebration. But over, I guess, on the same day, I had just received a job offer to become an executive director for a global youth organization. And two weeks in, in a donor space, I had that job rescinded. And this, along with other elements of exhaustion with no exit, burnout with no healing, and trauma that predates one's own harm, are quite prevalent elements that many activists experience. At the same time, many peers were quite confused and frustrated with the funding landscape. And this was just on the crux of Beijing plus 25, ICPD plus 25. And so there were a lot of global initiatives that were emerging that were not just commemorative of historical gains made in the women's rights movement or in climate justice work, but you found a lot of young people wanting to be a part of these movements and these processes, but gatekeeping, feeling invalidated, consistently unsure and questioning whether they're doing the right thing as a result of grant applications are not being able to occupy space in all these different advocacy spaces are really some of the reasons and some of the elements that are emerging as to why there is a need for addressing the challenges for human rights you know, defenders, activists, and feminists within the context of the 21st century. And I think this is important because we're talking about digitalization, globalization, and uh, a lot of emergent development issues that are occurring today. And I think, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, you're finding that enablers such as donors, development actors, UN agencies, intergovernmental or multilateral institutions and other advocacy spaces speak of communities being at the heart of their work. Some of them are blind to the harm that they perpetuate, but we've seen you know, the challenges that have been emerging in global INGOs where sexual assault, abuse, and basically elements of colonial extractive behavior passive aggression, exploitation of free labor for exposure, non-recognition of care work, politics of proximity to power, politics of proximity to whiteness, language and ableism, an element of othering as well in being exclusionary in the context of programming, the context of leadership, occupying roles, and even just you know, determining what success looks like. And so I think it's important for us to recognize why programs such as these are really critical to ensuring that you know, those activists, whether registered or not, whether institutionalized or not, whether fluid or whether they can speak English or not, that they can be linked and that they can emerge within the context of global policy making. And so this is critical, at least in some of the insights that have been shared. And I think, you know, it's really quite telling how some of these experiences are quite common. And so despite, you know, this program or this campaign being launched two years later, since those incidents of my own experience, you're having, you know, these activists actually stress at how language is an issue. 
at how there's confusion in terms of how to communicate with donors uh, because they're not too sure what donors want. What is the, the palatability or the acceptability of you know, the issue that you're trying to address, especially when it's going to be weighted against another struggle? And so I think you know, it's recognizing that there is a need to address the cultural norms, the cultural ways of working, and the practices that exist within the development and philanthropic landscape, and recognizing that there's a need to shift that power. You know, why do we have, for instance, a hashtag MeToo that will emerge at the International Civil Society Week in Belgrade? Why do we have a fees must fall in South Africa's context or not just NCVO in recognizing some of the injustices that are occurring? And so I think it's really quite critical, particularly in bringing in the element of a critical friend in literally still living some of the experiences now in recognizing that there is a need to shift power and that there is a need to create some of those spaces. And so it's been really powerful in recognizing and seeing how authentically engaged, you know, without performative allyship, so to speak, you know, without statements being published in the name of solidarity, but really in creating spaces that center activists, those with lived experiences, those who truly are still going through some of the challenges and still navigating that and still finding a way that is based or anchored in love. Love work is not easy. It's not to say that it's a clear and beautiful picture, but that it's messy and there's a consistent back and forth. And that's the power of co-creation. That's the power of experience, you know, experimental learning. It's the power of storytelling. And that's what emerges from, you know, being able to create that kind of space and be able to actually have individuals who are comfortable in having these kinds of difficult conversations because that kind of conversation can instill or encourage change and hopefully that might possibly mean that you know for an activist in the future there might be a little bit of a better landscape for them to operate in and I, I think you know something that really something that really resonated with me is in recognizing that it's not always the case that you know the activists that spark the fire get to sit in the fire and so the unique and innovative approach to being a critical friend is that in sparking some of these fires, I'm then able to at least have some of these conversations that can reflect the urgency of the climate crisis, the urgency of the need to fund new, you know, feminist and grassroots movements, the urgency to recognize, strengthen, and enable diversity, inclusion, literally in the crux of poverty, in the crux of hashtag gonna gets better, in the crux of queer liberation. And so I think it's really critical for us to recognize that these spaces are not enough and Civicus is doing one aspect of the work that needs to be done across the sector. Wow, Dumi, I have to say I have goosebumps and everything that you're saying resonates so much with me on a personal level, but also on a professional level. And yes, we do need more power shift and we do need more ways to innovate and shift the power it is time for us to find the new hows into doing those shifting powers and a new how into managing and and for the international organizations to find ways to to, to share this power let me go back to elisa after you've heard the comments from dumi that civicus is doing one aspect of this web but there must be some lessons learned and something that civicus can say this is something we have learned and it is time for us to change. Perhaps you can shed a light on that as well. 
it's um, our bar to meet. <laughs> Dumi, you left a really hard way to follow, but yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> but what can I share from Civic is what has opened the eyes in the organization and some close partners is open our eyes and hearts and everything to trust and new ways of working. So the co-creation part of finally practicing a partnership model with activists, recognizing their livelihood, so providing stipends for their time they work with an organization, not as volunteers, not as staff, but as partners with uh, fair compensation has been quite a change. Might not be very new to some organizations, but maybe for others, the participatory selection process where we invite the people who relate to the program, who created the program, who benefit from the program to also select who is going to receive that support. So again, it's all about shifting the power and giving the, the space to those in the front lines to, to take the final decisions on, on the resources available. And then the other one of testing new ways of communicating. One aspect that we heard that people appreciate a lot was one, the use of arts, use of creativity, use of storytelling as a tool for advocacy. We're sort of shifting away from the traditional PDF report with lessons and recommendations and data, sort of expecting a change to come from there, but more of a human approach to influence our partners, both in philanthropy and NGO sector. And maybe the other learning is that shifting power takes time. Even though we're in pressing times with urgent matters and we want change now, change happens very slowly and it happens when we have relationships and those relationships it's all about investing social capital right so how we can build trust how we can build understanding be all on the same page have the same capacity both professionally and mentally we we're in a world with all this context that not only affects our time but also our emotional stability and we need to be recognized of that therefore being patient and, and caring. What Dumi was saying, no, uh, having always a culture of reflection, changing that habit of only leaving the evaluation of our impact, the favorite word that we all love, to the end, to do it more on a constant and frequent manner, reflecting moments, bi-weekly check-ins, stop to think, breathe, and say, what happened? Why did it happen? Why it worked? Why it didn't work? And nurturing that learning system. Thank you all for talking about this and for getting creative ways into implementing and shifting power. Before we close today, is there anything that you would like to say to our audience or to the donors and to the international organizations that will be listening to you? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the first thing, particularly around decolonizing, I think it's quite important, is that there's so many conversations that are happening, you know, shift the power, localization, community philanthropy, participatory grant making, and all these are really great, and they're important within, I guess, the, the constellation of shifting power. 
what does it really mean within the context of lived experiences that are on the ground? Because to some extent, a lot of the conversations are still viewed within the context of a very institutional gaze. So a development gaze, be it where, or an alternative financing gaze, and that is still quite anchored on capitalist framing. So one, you know, we still have, you know, set outcomes. We still need to predetermine what kind of change will occur. And what's unique about this program or this campaign is that it's recognizing that there could possibly be unintended outcomes. So in as much as seeking justice is an aspiration or an objective and ensuring that we can secure this, you know, there might be social determinants that don't always actually say that this is a success. So, you know, for the enabler, it might seem like a success because you managed to get a legal remedy, but it doesn't mean that the individual is able to connect with their community, to have that sense of belonging, is not able to then, you know, practice their culture and so forth, because maybe that remedy doesn't actually, you know, recognize the context. And so I think in a very practical sense, when we're going to start talking about shifting power, we have to shift the lens. We have to take it away from ourselves in recognizing that I can still center myself in the conversation and there is a need to move away from that. That's the first thing. Uh, secondly, it's recognizing that I have the power and I can exert this power in as much as I want to transfer it, in as much as I recognize that you know others within the ecosystem have power. I still have my own contribution at an individual level in recognizing historical injustices in being a benefactor of, let me say, supremacy, if I can put it that way, in being a benefactor of privileged class um, within the context of the extraction and exploitation of African bodies, labor, and thinking, and even cultural expropriation. And so it's really quite critical for us to recognize that, yes, we tend to co-opt and be performative as allies, but what does it truly mean? Does that mean you must draw down your endowment? Does that mean that you cease to exist because essentially that's what shifting power is and more importantly from a feminist praxis you know if we talk about shifting power within the context of democracy we're talking about a transition but that's still very western and colonial so to speak because i mean as a former british empire botswana was a protectorate sorry, under the, the, the British Empire. Botswana was a protectorate. And we're, we're now recognizing Westminster forms of governance. It's still inherently colonial because there's so many laws that we still need to address today, 65 years later on independence. In fact, sitting and knowing full well that our government is actually intending to appeal the high court judgment that decriminalized same-sex relations in 12 days. And so I think it's very critical for us to recognize that programs such as the 21st century citizen action really recognize that in a century, so many things can happen. Unprecedented incidences like the COVID-19 pandemic who would have known that vaccine inequity could literally reflect apartheid states? Who would have known that feminists in South Africa would be calling code red against austerity measures in a middle-income country that is considered constitutionally equal and progressive in comparison to its regional peers. So I think it's recognizing that we need to be a lot more context specific. We need to give space. We need to enable without prescription. And when we speak about bodily autonomy and integrity, we like speaking about it within the context of SRHR and recognizing that in the context of an African home, there's a head of the household who can give consent on whether someone can get tested or get health services and so forth. And so I think it is really quite 
quite important for us to even recognize it within the context of funding is that the person who ultimately has the purse, whether it is a trustee who was inspired by a struggle because they were on a holiday or it is an officer who happens to be working that job for 10 years and did their master's thesis in my struggle. They are still far removed from the lived experiences that I have to go through. They are far removed from the realities that other activists that literally have to now juggle the climate crisis, violence, inequality, poverty, thinking about bills, black tax, and institutional racism to top it off. And that isn't even the entire recipe. So I think it's very critical for us to recognize that decolonization isn't intellectual play, that it is not having a conversation that, that helps you pat yourself on the back or helps you sleep at night. It is uncomfortable, it is difficult, it does not look pretty, and there isn't a linear approach to it because it is anchored in Ubuntu. It is anchored and centered in collectivism. I am an activist because you are an activist as well. And if you are in my shoes, you then recognize that there's so many other social determinants to my enablement, not just financing, but also more importantly, not other elements that are inherently racist, sexist, ableist, or exclusionary of other groups and other individuals that might not have the privilege that I have, either as a critical friend or as an NGO founder. Thank you. Again, Dumi, goosebumps, and I hear you so loud and clear. Thank you. Thank you so much for this intervention and for your words. And it's really encouraging and, and critical at this time. Clara, Elisa, any, any final words that you would like to add here? Well, thank you once more for the opportunity to share. And yeah, and perhaps just say it from our end, we've, you know, we've shared the a bit practical side of things that we've done, but I just wanted to emphasize that this has been, and it still is a journey, and that has been some of the approaches that we're testing. We feel that they're very valid because of course, we're not, we've, we've done many mistakes. We are not here just to celebrate what we've done, but just to share that the fact that an approach like this has some value to it because it has been challenging us. It has offering us also as enablers no, or, or aspiring enablers, a mirror to look at on a constant basis. If somebody has found an interest in this approach, do follow us because we keep on sharing a bit of these reflections, honest reflections as they come, not just to, as I said, celebrate our programs, but really just to share a bit of what we're doing, what we're learning and trying to unlearn as well. Thank you. Yeah, maybe also thank everyone and maybe send an invitation to all members of the International Soul Society Center and all listeners to just reach out if you're having the same questions and testing similar approaches or around the topic, we'll love to also learn from you and, and exchange. You can find links to more information and resources on this topic in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to us.